Lord, we are so thankful for this beautiful day that you've given us, for this opportunity that we have to come together to worship you, to honor you and lift up your name, for you are worthy, Lord. You have done so much for us. You are a wonderful Father. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your love and your amazing grace that you've shown to us. May you be honored here this morning as we lift up our praise. May it be glorious. May it be a sweet-smelling sacrifice to you. And may you be honored today. Lord, may there be no distractions here, but that you would be the center of our attention and our worship this morning. We thank you for all of this. You are so good to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Bless the Lord, O my soul, worship his holy name. Sing like never before, O my soul, I worship your holy name.
How many people have ever heard of the Barna Group? The Barna Group. Barna, okay, a couple people. So the Barna Group essentially is a group, um, they're based in the States, but they kind of do um, surveys of, uh, of everything, really, um, but mostly about the church and Christianity and faith and religion. Uh, and it kind of gives the church and Christians a, a bit of an idea of uh, where everyone's at uh, in, in our culture. So it kind of gives us a, a finger on the pulse to know um, where the society around us is at, what people believe, uh, and, and uh, what, where our work is, I, I, I guess would be a good way to put it. So a few years ago, the Biner Group took a survey of a large pool of Christians, and they discovered that 48% of the people who were surveyed believe this. They believe that if people are generally good or do enough good things for others and follow the Ten Commandments, they will earn a place in heaven. That was 48% of people who, on the survey, claimed to be Christian. And the president of the Barna Group, George Barna, responded by saying this, There is plenty of reason for the church to be worried if nearly one half of their people who believe in Jesus, also believe in salvation by works. The central message of Christianity is salvation by faith in Jesus, yet many Christians seem to believe and be preaching a different message. So, we've been studying Philippians for six weeks now. This is our seventh week in the letter. And, and so far, pretty much everything we've studied has had to do with the inner life of the church in Philippi. Um, there wasn't a lot of individual instructions. It was mostly talking about everybody in the church corporately. But the first century was the formation period of the church. It wasn't established like it is today. It was still new and it was still vulnerable. It had just been born a few decades ago. And when it was born, it had come out of Judaism as a religion. And because of this, there were many Jewish converts who were trying to twist and shape Christianity. And these people posed a big risk to the church. So much so that Paul warns Christians about them all throughout his ministry and letters. They were known as the Judaizers. And if you've ever heard that name, uh, you'll understand where I'm going with this. So they believed, these Judaizers, that People needed to become Jews before they could become Christians. They believed that they needed to follow the law, they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved before they could accept the gift of Jesus. Essentially, if they wanted to be saved, they needed to earn it. And while we can't relate to these Judaizers today, because we don't really have those affecting the church anymore, we're kind of two separate things, we're facing the same type of threat as a church. The belief that if you want to be saved, you have to earn it. You see, this group of people, these Judaizers, they put their faith in their heritage, their customs and laws, and their upright standing as God's chosen people, keeping themselves separate from the unclean neighboring Gentiles. They took pride in these things. But my fear is that we are not always that different. 
Because as Christians, we take pride in being followers of Jesus, as we should, but we take pride in being the good and decent people, the ones who follow the rules, descended from generations of church families, always striving to follow the Bible and the Ten Commandments, not hanging around with the wrong type of people or saying the wrong words. We take pride in those things, and that's not bad, but sometimes it gets to the point where we can be as guilty as the Judaizers of living our lives as if being a good person, being from the right background, following the right rules, we, we sometimes are guilty of living as if these things can save us. We act as if they make us better than other people. But the truth is, compared to the value of knowing Jesus, our efforts are all worthless, because Jesus is more. So today we're in Philippians 3, verses 1 to 14, and I'm reading from the New International Version today. Um, if you follow along in your Bible, what you probably notice is that I very often switch the translation I read from. So today it's the New International Version. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have many reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me before, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus. Okay, so this is a long passage. Um, I think it's a lot longer than what I did last week. Uh, so we'll just bite-size our way through it. Uh, we'll start right at the beginning. Uh, two things are important to mention right at the beginning of this passage. Uh, the first is the word finally. Now, we translate this as finally in English, but in Greek, the word that is used there is only sometimes translated as finally. Often it's used as a transition between thoughts. So 
Uh, if you were thinking, oh great, Stephen's almost done Philippians. <laughs> Sorry, we still got a little ways to go. Um, it's not a conclusion. <laughs> the second thing that they take note of is that Paul says, it is no trouble for me to write these things to you again. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. It, it could mean that Paul had written them another letter that we don't know about. But the word used for write does not necessarily mean it was written. Uh, it's often translated as communicated. So this also could mean that Paul had talked to them about these issues when he was in Philippi uh, before. So either way, this is something, what we're about to talk about is something that he talked to them about many times before. And this is what he says. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And that's strong words. And, and this is referring to that group that I referred to before called the Judaizers, uh, who traveled around preaching that people had to be converted to Judaism before they could be saved by Jesus. So... I really want to focus on the language Paul uses here. Sometimes we forget that Paul was a human like the rest of us, and he had emotions. So to understand this fully, you need to understand in the first century that calling someone a dog was not the same thing as calling someone a dog today. Like, that's offensive enough today, but it was different then. Because in that culture, they did not have dogs as pets, especially the Jewish culture. Because to them, dogs were considered one of the most vile, disgusting, unclean, and unholy animals. They were on the same level in Judaism as pigs. Dogs in the Eastern world, even today, are not tame. They're mostly vicious. They wander around the streets and fields, eating excrement and rolling around in corpses. This is the picture that's painted throughout Scripture of the dogs. So... It's very ironic and very intentional that Paul is calling the Judaizers, the ones who put their faith in the law and holiness and being God's chosen people, it's ironic that he is referring to them as dogs, as the unclean, unholy ones, the evil workers. He also calls them mutilators of the flesh. And he's talking about circumcision here, but... This is not the proper Greek word for circumcision. He calls it katatome, which is a word used, um, it's used in a number of scenarios, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the word that's used to describe pagan worshippers who, who would mutilate themselves and cut themselves while worshipping false gods. So he's saying that these Judaizers, they're, they're they're unholy, unclean people who mutilate themselves in false worship. And ironically, the word can also be translated to emasculate or castrate. And the reason I mention all of this is because these are not light phrases. Paul was a person just like us. He had emotions. He's being very specific and using very inflammatory language. He's angry about these people. He's furious at what they're doing. Verse 3, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. 
And that Greek word for circumcision is the proper one. Sometimes it's translated in English translations as we are the true circumcision. The Greek word he uses is peritome, and that is the proper name for circumcision in Scripture. So to understand what Paul's really doing here, you need to understand what circumcision really was. Uh, because the Jewish people did not actually understand at this point. Those who were saying it was still required to be saved, you had to do this physical thing, they didn't actually get it. Because circumcision was as much of a spiritual thing as it was a physical thing. It was the sign that you were the covenant people of God. It was the sign of their commitment to follow God and to follow his commandments. But you kind of get this sense of the spiritual side of it as well as the physical side throughout Scripture. Just a couple references in Jeremiah, uh, chapter 6. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed. And the literal translation in Hebrew is, their ears are uncircumcised and they cannot listen. And then in chapter 9, verse 25 of Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. And just to stop for a minute, like we know what circumcision is. Like you can't be one and the other. You're one or the other. So clearly it's not just a physical thing to God. I will punish all those who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. And he goes through a list of all these evil nations, but then he also says, and all the house of Israel, they'll punish them too, because they are uncircumcised of heart. So when Paul says that we are the true circumcision as the church, he's not talking about physical circumcision. He's talking about what it represents. So what does that look like? If, we are the, if we've been made the covenant people of God, what does that mean? What does it look like? So first of all, we worship in the spirit of God. John 4, 24 says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And this is just going through that list of what he says in Philippians. The second thing is we boast only in Jesus Christ, not in circumcision, not in following the law, only in Jesus Galatians 6.14 says, May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything. What counts is the new creation. And then third, he says, we put no confidence in the flesh. And that's what this really means here. This is kind of a theme you're going to see through the rest of this passage is that we do not put hope in anything that we do to save us. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, the law, through the law, we became conscious of our sin. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot be good enough by following the law. All have sinned, and all fall short. So from here, Paul gives a great reminder that if anyone could have been saved through their life's work, if anyone could have been good enough, it would have been him. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, Ezrazeel persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So he'd been circumcised in complete and precise accordance with the law. You were supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day in that culture, and of course not everyone lived within short walking distance of someone who was authorized to do this. So, you know, everyone in that culture in, in Israel, yeah, they would have been circumcised. Maybe it wasn't on the eighth day. Maybe it was on the sixth day. Maybe it was on the 15th day or two months later when they were next in that town. But he had been done in precise accordance with the law. So any sort of advantage that he could claim to his benefit for this was his. He was also not a convert to Judaism or the descendant of one. He could trace his genealogy back as far as it was possible for any Jew to do. So not only that, but he was the, from the prestigious tribe of Benjamin, which if you've read through um, the Old Testament, you'll know that this is one of the two tribes that did not revolt against the Davidic line of kings. He could also speak Hebrew, and at that point in history, it was not very common. Uh, the religious leaders could, uh, but for the most part, everyone spoke Greek or Aramaic. But he spoke the ancient and holy language of God's chosen people. He was faithful to their culture. As for following the law, he was a Pharisee, and they were known to be the strictest interpreters of the scriptures. They loved the law. But he didn't stop there, because unlike many of his fellow Pharisees, he personally and physically persecuted the church because they were heretics to him. He did it for his love of God. He showed the greatest passion for the religion that he believed to be true that it was possible to do. So as for righteousness, he was as blameless as it was possible to be humanly. We all know that we've all sinned, but before he was converted, he had supposed that he had come as close as it was possible to be to being saved by works. But then he says in verse 7 to 8, But whatever was considered gain to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. So despite all those things he could boast about, despite the fact that he physically through the law was about as holy as it was possible to be, he considered it all garbage. Everything he thought was valuable to him before, he'd given it all up for Jesus. They weren't steps to heaven. They were obstacles blocking his path to God. He'd relied on these things and had given him an incorrect estimation of his own character and standing and morality. So he gave it all up. And not only are those things worthless to him now, but compared to knowing Jesus, everything is worthless. Nothing has value in life compared to knowing Jesus. And he says he considers everything else to be garbage. And I'm going to be honest, um, as someone who studies the Bible and gets into Greek, this is one of my favorite mistranslations in Scripture. 
Because the Greek word he uses is skybalon, and it's the only time it's used in the Bible. We translate it as garbage or rubbish because we're kind of, uh, I don't know, so we can be kind of prude or so as Christians. But its literal translation is dumb, excrement, poop. You didn't think I was going to say poop in church, did you? (laughs) But Paul said it first, so it's okay. But it almost has a cruder sense to it than that when he's saying this. I'm not going to swear in the middle of church, obviously, but compared to the value of knowing Jesus, everything in life, everything that we put our hope in, is as of much value as what's floating around the sewage lagoon on the way to Stratford when you cross the bridge. That's what he's saying. That's the disdain Paul has for the things of this world, the things he used to put his hope in. And the things of this world are as of much value to us as they were for Paul. Verse 9 to 14, and just to read that verse 9 again, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I'm going to read through this whole last bit just because it kind of all works together. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already attained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, all that stuff he was talking about, and straining towards what is ahead, Jesus. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And just like for Paul, this is the goal for all of us in life as Christians. We have to let go of all the things that we used to put our hope in. Because knowing Jesus is worth so much more than all of that garbage and filth. We let go and instead accept the righteousness that comes from faith in Jesus. Not in anything we've ever done or could do to earn it. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from our actions and our decisions but from God. This is the solution to our worthlessness, the worthlessness of our own efforts. The solution to our insufficiency is the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And this passage brings a knowledge of how God makes his, resu- or his uh, righteousness available through the, faith- or through the faithfulness of Jesus and our total and complete reliance on him. Knowing him means experiencing the righteousness of God with the eventual end goal of attaining the prize at the end of the race, which is resurrection. And we'll get into that a little bit more next week. So the lesson for them was that with these Judaizers coming around, preaching about following the law and circumcision, the lesson for them was that they could not earn their salvation. They could not earn their freedom. They needed to let go of all the things they were clinging to and recognize that Jesus was so much more and so much better than all the garbage that they used to put their hopes in. 
So what lessons should we take away today for us? And the first one is that Jesus is more than our doubts. Because we all have doubts. We all have things that make us doubt or that distract from the raw truth of the gospel of Jesus. So for the recipients of this letter, it was the Judaizers. Because these people spent their lives believing that God worked a certain way, that salvation worked a certain way. And so when these traveling preachers would come through and tell them that the Gentiles among them needed to be circumcised and become Jews first, it probably made sense to them. And it probably even appealed to them because it was familiar. So you might remember at the first week um, that I said the church in Philippi was started with the Jewish families first. They were the bedrock of the church in that city. But Paul reminds them, it's not about these things anymore. It's not about being circumcised or following the law or any of this stuff. That's not how you're saved anymore. Don't get distracted. Don't doubt what you already know to be true. You know that Jesus is so much more than all that stuff. Don't get distracted by it. So for us, what distracts you from the truth of the gospel? And what makes you question the sufficiency of his grace in your life? Second, Jesus is more than our efforts. And this can be a bitter pill for us to swallow because we don't like to accept that we're sinners. I mean, no one's perfect, but I've never killed anybody. I go to church every Sunday. I try not to swear. I put my money in the plate. I read my Bible every day. I try to be nice to everyone I talk to. And and for the most part, I haven't broken the Ten Commandments. I'm, I'm a good person. Whatever that means. But at the end of the day, none of it matters. When it comes to salvation, you might do all of these things. And by the world's earthly standard, you may very well be a good person. Again, whatever that means. But when it comes to salvation, it's not enough. Nobody can be saved by their works. Nobody can earn salvation. You can't keep enough commandments. You can't give enough money. You can't read enough of the Bible, and you cannot attend enough services to earn your way to heaven. You can't do it. You cannot earn salvation. It didn't work for Paul, and it won't work for us. But fortunately, Jesus is more than our efforts because he was perfect. He did keep all the commandments. You don't have to earn your way to heaven. You just have to accept that he did it for you. That's the value of knowing Jesus. And then third, Jesus is more than life itself. And this is just a natural outcome or conclusion of all of this. When Paul considered the value of knowing Jesus, he didn't just consider all his past efforts to be a good person to be worthless. He considered everything else in life to be worthless compared to the value of knowing Jesus. He set aside his position as a Pharisee. He set aside his heritage, his social standing, and respect. He set it all aside to know and follow Jesus because he knew that Jesus was so much more to him than any of those other things ever could be or ever were. So what about you? Are you willing to set aside everything else for him? 
Are you willing to sacrifice it all? Anything and everything that you once thought was worth something in your life. Anything and everything you have ever put your hope in. Your time, your commitments. If Jesus was here today and asked you to do it, would you be willing to give it all up and recognize that Jesus is worth so much more than all of it? <sighs> so in conclusion... Compared to the value of knowing Jesus, everything else in life is worthless. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We cannot earn our way. We can never be good enough, follow enough rules, memorize enough Bible, give enough money to earn our way to heaven. The only way is through Jesus. Jesus is more than our doubts about him. He's more than our efforts to be holy. And he's more than life itself. Compared to knowing him, everything else in life is worthless. It's all garbage. Jesus says in Matthew 16, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? To gain Jesus, we must let go of all the things that we've held on to and put our hope in. To follow him, to run the race, means choosing him over what this world has to offer. It means accepting the hard truth that you cannot earn your way. And my prayer for us as we live today is that we would be willing and able to let go, to accept our own insufficiency, so that we will be able to accept the total sufficiency of Jesus. Father God, I thank you that you are all sufficient in light of my own insufficiency. And I just thank you for all that you've done for us. I just ask that you would help us to let go of all the things that we cling to, help us to let go of all the things that we put our hope in, and instead direct us and guide us to put our hope and our faith solely in you. Help us to be light as we go out into the world this week, and be with us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So many great hymns we have. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And this song, this hymn speaks to It is well with my soul. What a blessed assurance we have in knowing Jesus. Thank you.
Thank you.